Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. Bible study. And as we get started tonight, just a little reminder if you haven't already heard, this Sunday morning we'll be resuming a meeting in person in one meeting time, and that's going to be at 10.30 a.m. So the time that we were operating uh, with before COVID-19, we're going back to one service at one time. We've been doing two services, but we believe that uh, with some added seating that we have placed into our worship center, along with the requisite social distancing, we'll be able to, to have plenty of room for everybody to spread out and everybody to be here in one service at 1030 starting this Sunday. Also, we will resume our regular Sunday morning groups, our Sunday school groups, this Sunday as well at 9.15 as per usual. And because of the governor's mandate for the next two weeks, he has issued a mask mandate. There are some exceptions in there, but we are going to follow the wording and follow the recommendations in his executive order. And we are going to say that masks are strongly encouraged uh, during our worship time. And so uh, if you have those, we ask that you would bring those and wear those. If you do not have one, we will have a limited number of masks available as you enter the building. So we're just doing that out of courtesy and out of safety. Uh, we just want everyone to be safe and in order to comply with the, uh, with the last mandate that came down yesterday. And so uh, look forward to seeing all of you here this Sunday morning at 1030. Granted, we've been meeting in person for quite some time. Uh, before this Sunday is coming, we've been we've been meeting together, and we have uh, enjoyed that time together. And we've uh, had a smaller group, of course, because of COVID nineteen. But we look forward to everyone being together in the same room at the same time and seeing each other again this Sunday morning. And so we invite you to join us as we continue our study of Habakkuk, and we will continue our study of Habakkuk chapter two. Well, tonight I want us to think about this topic, an all-time low. Whenever we think about all-time lows, we usually think about maybe someone going into a depressed state, and maybe they have experienced great loss or great grief, and maybe they're going through a very difficult, tumultuous, emotional time, and they just feel low, and they say, I've reached an all-time low low. We use phrases all-time low to refer, to refer to financial markets. When a financial market takes a plunge or there's a tremendous drop, we say that it has reached an all-time low. Sometimes we talk about entertainment and maybe a new movie or a television show will be released and perhaps because of some of the material or because of the lack of merit or because of the, the terrible acting that may be going on, in that episode or in that movie, we might say that now this area or this particular series, this particular uh, form of entertainment has reached an all-time low. And we normally use this in a negative sense. Well, tonight I want us to talk about how we are to live in an all-time low. 
And that is, and I know you may be saying, what on earth are you talking about? Are you saying that we should live in a depressed state? Not at all. Are you saying that we should live in a way that uh, just is, is a, a level that is just a plummet below the lowest standard possible? Not at all. I am saying, though, that we are to live with a constant lowliness of heart and a constant humility. We are to have an all time low. And that is to be expressed in the way that we live. Now, you find throughout the Bible, there were individuals that for which that was not the case. People who did not live so far as uh, in a lowly way and a humble way. And we find that uh, throughout the Bible, you found some very strong warnings for those people or those individuals. And the Bible says that we are to live with humility. And the Bible says that there are certain things that are expected, especially as we follow God. And so here's the central truth. And I don't have multiple points. Now I just have one central truth that I'm going to continue to come back to tonight. And it's this. To step up into the kingdom of God requires us to step down from our own kingdoms. To step up into the kingdom of God requires us to step down from our own kingdoms. We develop our own kingdoms. We develop our own way of doing things. We have our own standards. But we are to step down from those in order to step into the kingdom of God and a life with God. And I say step down because the kingdom of God operates in, a, in almost a reversed fashion. And we're going to look more at that in just a few moments. But we find that oftentimes in the kingdom, the way that would seem up to us is actually the way down. And the way that appears to us to be a way of stooping, a way of, of getting down lower, a way of reversal is actually the way to greatness in the kingdom of God. Now, I mentioned earlier that throughout the Bible, there are people who did not live with humility. And one of those groups that we find mentioned throughout the New Testament are the Pharisees. The word Pharisee comes from a word that means to separate. And the Pharisees were very much separatists. They, they were the ruling religious party and uh, one of the ruling religious parties. And they regarded themselves as separate from everyone else. They regarded themselves as better than everyone else. They regarded themselves as experts when it came to matters of following God's law. And Jesus makes a statement. And this statement seems to be very confusing. It may be confusing to us, but it was especially confusing to those who first heard it. Jesus says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying these Pharisees who were extreme in their lifestyle, many of whom would, would go to extreme measures to avoid even the very appearance of sin. Now, I know the Bible says that we're to avoid the appearance of sin. But they would go above and beyond. In fact, there was a group of Pharisees that were referred to as the bleeding Pharisees. And the reason they call them the bleeding Pharisees is because they did not want to look at a female and have the wrong kind of thoughts and the wrong kind of motives 
arise within their hearts and minds. And so instead of guarding their eyes in the sense of guarding it from things that might lead them astray, they would actually walk down the street and they would walk down the street with their heads looking down. They would look down at the ground and avoid looking at anybody. And that by doing that, they believe that that way they will never be tempted to look at someone with lust or with the wrong motives or with the wrong thoughts. So they would have their heads down and they'd walk everywhere. They would run into things, bust their heads open, and they were referred to as the bleeding Pharisees. And they regarded that as a mark of their piety, a mark of their righteousness, that they would go to such an extreme to try to avoid sin. And Jesus says, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. But then Jesus says this. Now, I know that's confusing, and we're going to unpack this in a moment. But Jesus says, your righteousness has to be above and beyond that. But then listen to what Jesus says also about the Pharisees, about these Pharisees that wanted to make all of their works known publicly. He says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So in one breath, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, your righteousness, your right standing must exceed that of the Pharisees. And then one chapter later, Jesus says, your righteousness should not be practiced in front of other people because if that's the case, you have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Well, how do we... How do we rectify these two things? Well, we have to understand the righteousness that Jesus is speaking of is not our own righteousness. What the Pharisees were doing was exposing or what they were revealing their own dependence upon their own self-righteousness. And Jesus says that righteousness, even though it may look supreme, even though it may look far better than your righteousness, your righteousness must exceed their righteousness. Well, how does that happen? It happens by depending upon the righteousness of Jesus alone, the right standing of Jesus alone. And so we depend upon him. We depend upon his strength. We depend upon him for everything that we need in order to have right standing with God. Now, it's a metaphor that breaks down, but it reminds me of a, of a story that I once heard about Muhammad Ali, famous boxer. A reporter had asked him one time, uh, Muhammad, what is, well, what's, the, what's the largest amount or, or what's the, the most push-ups you can do? And Muhammad Ali said, I can do about eight or nine. And the reporter said, did you say 89 or eight or nine? He said, I can do about eight or nine. He said, you mean to tell me, this world champion boxer, and you can only do eight or nine push-ups? And he says, yes, because I only start counting when I can't do any more. And so, and of course that was a joke, but I only start counting when I can't do any more. Can I just tell you, uh, that phrase pretty much summarizes the, the whole idea of righteousness that we receive from Christ. It only really begins to count 
when we realize we can't do anymore. When we recognize that we ourselves cannot work it up, we can't build it up, we can't store it up, we can't do anything to achieve righteousness, that is when we begin to count upon, depend upon, rely upon the righteousness that is found in Christ alone and not our own righteousness. It begins to count when we realize that we can't do any more. We can't do enough. We can't do halfway and he takes up the other half. No, we must depend totally upon the righteousness that is found in Christ alone. And if we're depending on his righteousness, then our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. But in order to see that happen in our lives, we go back to that central truth. To step up into the kingdom of God requires us to step down from our own kingdoms. The Pharisees were not willing to step down from their own kingdoms. And so for us to live at an all-time low with that full-time humility, if you want to say it that way, we must first step down from our kingdoms in order to step into the kingdom of God. Well, so what does it look like? What does it look like to step down from our own kingdom and step into the kingdom of God? Well, it, there is a cost. And I know some, so many times people say, well, you can't really say there's a cost because salvation is free. Well, salvation is a free gift to us but it is a gift that, that came at a very, very dear cost. That is the, the death of Jesus. But to follow Christ will cost us. It doesn't mean we work for our salvation, but it does mean there are certain things that we must leave behind, we must turn over, we must surrender, we must forsake, and we must love so much less than a life with Christ. So we refer to that as the cost of discipleship. It's not the cost of our salvation in that we pay for it in order to gain it. Salvation is a gift, but to live for Christ requires sacrifice on our part. And I think a couple of passages will make this more clear. We find in Luke chapter 9, verse 57, Jesus is traveling with the disciples. And Luke records, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus, I am with you to the end. I'm going to follow you. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, that doesn't seem like an answer to this statement that this person made. I'll follow you wherever you go. And he says, foxes have places, they have burrows to sleep in. Birds have nests and trees to sleep in. But the Son of Man, speaking about himself, has nowhere to lay his head. I don't have a true place I can call home. So Jesus is saying to this individual who's saying, I'll follow, any, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus is telling him, listen, Part of the cost is that this world will not be your home. Part of the cost is that you, you, you aren't going to find that, that peace and that comfort and that, that stability that even some of the animals have if you're going to follow me. So then someone else comes up to him. To another he said, follow me. Now Jesus is telling that person, follow me. 
But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now that seems like a reasonable, a reasonable answer. Let me go bury my father. Now there is some implication in this that, and, and I can't, I don't have time to unpack all of the, the nuances of it, but there is some indication that the phrase that this person used to Jesus meant, my father isn't dead yet, but let me stay here until my father dies and bury him, and then I'll come with you. And again, that's sort of the, one of the understood things that, uh, that some commentators have said that he was talking about. Not that his father was actually already dead and there was about to be a funeral, but that he was saying, let me first go and bury my father. Let me, let me first have this time, and then whenever that happens, let me bury my father. Whichever one it is, this seems like a very strange response. And Jesus said to him, let, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. It sounds kind of harsh that Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter about that. But Jesus is talking about let the dead bury their own dead. Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. I want you to be more concerned about the things of the kingdom than you are the dead things here of earth. And then we find another exchange. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Let me go back and say goodbye to everybody. I'm going to go with you, but I just need some time to go back, say goodbye, say my pleasantries, uh, give them a forwarding address, give them all this information. Let me first go back and do that. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Meaning that if you were, uh, the, the agricultural metaphor he's using is if you were plowing with a plow, walking behind uh, a farm animal, and if you were looking back, you would not be able to plow a straight furrow. You would go all over the field because you weren't looking in the right way. Jesus is saying you can't look back if you're going to follow me. These are some of the things that he says about the cost of discipleship. But he's not done. That's in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 14, this idea continues about the cost. So we find in Luke chapter 14, verse 25, now instead of individuals coming to him or him going to individuals, he has big crowds, multitudes of people surrounding him. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, let me pause for just a moment. You would think that most pastors, most teachers, most leaders, when they are surrounded by great crowds, and a great crowd is following, hanging upon every word, ready to, to follow this individual, ready to move the organization forward, ready for the group to do something great, you would think that that person would say something very rousing, very encouraging to encourage those who are kind of on the outskirts, those people who are just barely hanging on, those people who may be saying, well, I'm not sure, I'm, not kind, of, I'm kind of along for the ride, and I'm not really sure. You would think that that leader would address those that were the most fervent, and, and the leader would say, you are going to ride with me, we are going to go to the end, we're going to make this, it's going to be incredible. And then for those of you who are on the outskirts, for those of you who may be on the periphery, for those who are just kind of straddling the fence, you're not decided yet, you need to make a decision today and you need to come with us and great things, you can see great things in your life. 
All sorts of things like this is what we would think. Look at what Jesus does. He turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I just imagine the disciples then, his group around him thinking, this is not, I thought we were trying to get people to follow. I thought the whole goal was to get as many people as possible to follow you. And now here you are saying some really hard stuff. You have, if someone comes to you and doesn't hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, and even hate his own life, he can't even be your disciple. Not that, not that, well, he needs to make a decision. And No, he can't even be your disciple. The, the love that you have for Christ has to make everything else look like hate by comparison. And you've got to hate your own life and love the life of Christ. And then he goes on and says, you have to bear your own cross. If you, you don't bear your cross and come after me, you cannot be my disciple. Not you're going to be a weak disciple. Not you're going to be an ineffective disciple. Not you're a disciple who's going to need some work. No, he says, you cannot be my disciple. These are the words of Jesus. And then he goes on and he hits even harder. But for which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Jesus says, if you're going to do something as simple as build a building, you would get your materials together, you would see how much money you had, you would buy the materials, you would make sure you had enough materials, you make sure you have enough money to finish the project, because otherwise you're going to get it half done, you're going to run out of money, you're going to run out of resources, and then everybody's going to look at that and they're going to wag their heads and they're going to cluck their tongues and they're going to say, this person didn't even think ahead. This person didn't even plan. And he's saying, that's what you have to do if you're going to follow me. You have to realize it's going to cost you. So you better count the cost before you take that step into following me. Then he goes on. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So he's saying just as a king would weigh out and deliberate if he had enough resources to actually wage battle and wage war with another king who might have stronger and more numerous resources. He says, just as that king would weigh that out before he went to battle, you need to weigh it out whether or not you're going to step into this battle and you're going to fight alongside me. And if you do not renounce all that you have, you can't be my disciple. These are some, these are some very, very hard words. But Jesus is saying, if you're going to step up into the kingdom of God, it requires us to step down from our own kingdoms and live at an all-time low, to live with full-time humility. That's what Jesus calls us to. This is the whole idea of the kingdom. He's talking about life in the kingdom with God as our king and all of us who follow Christ as the followers 
you find this little revealing nugget here. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. I put 33 through 34. This is just verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The context is people who are worried, people who are worried about what they're going to wear and what they're going to eat, and they're worried about all the earthly things. And Jesus says, you seek first the kingdom of God, you seek first the righteousness of God, and all these things will be added to you. We'll take care of that. Those things are taken care of in the kingdom. The king is going to take care of his followers. The general will take care of his troops. The father will take care of his children. And so with that in mind, he says, though, seek first the kingdom of God. Which means if you're seeking first the kingdom of God, that means that is the priority. You have one priority, and that is seeking the kingdom of God, and everything else falls into place. That requires us to step down from our own kingdom. It doesn't say, seek first the kingdom of God and also your kingdom. And, and seek his righteousness and your self-righteousness. It doesn't say that. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. And, and we're not seeking our own kingdoms here. So with that in mind, what does that look like? What does this backward, lowly step look like? Well, Jesus gives us an example, and it happens at the Last Supper. Before Jesus is taken out, and before he goes out to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is betrayed, arrested, and then he is taken to that mock trial, and uh, he's, later he is taken to the cross. Before that occurs, he has this last meal with the disciples. And this is one of the things that happens at that last meal. It's found in John chapter 13, starting with verse 12. When he had washed their feet, he actually took a towel and he wrapped around his waist. He took a basin of water. He got down on his knees and he washed the disciples' feet, which was the duty of the lowest servant in the house. In those days, we didn't have, uh, or they didn't have shoes that, I had nice insoles and they were, you know, washable fabrics and stuff like that with scotch guard and dirt and water would be repelled off of them. No, uh, they were just very, very simple, very simple sandals. And so you would walk along, your feet would get dirty and dusty. If there was mud, your feet would get wet and they would get muddy. And there were all things, all sorts of other things out in the streets. Uh, you can just imagine that you might step in. And so this lowly task, it was considered so dirty and so menial. And yet Jesus washes the disciples' feet there at the Last Supper. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he went back to the table, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right. For so I am. So he's not denying that he's, that he's anything less than Lord. He's not denying that he's something less than the teacher, the rabbi. He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, and you also, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He's saying, if I, being Lord, if I, being teacher, if I, being, as he is saying, if I'm, I am the, the greater and if that's the case, and if I'm washing your feet, how much more should you serve each other? He goes on, tells them this, for I have given you an example 
that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He said, I've given you an example. Sometimes in the Bible, that particular word, example, is used to refer to an undertracing. That is, you would take a drawing, you would take a word, you would take some sort of image, uh, whatever it is you would want to copy, and you would place it under another piece of paper, and you would trace over it. I remember when I was a little kid, uh, probably like many of you, that was one way that I learned to draw to begin with was I would trace things. I would trace the, the letters uh, of, remember those, if you remember, you had those writing pads, and they had uh, dotted letters on the pads, and you would, you would connect all those dotted lines to make the letters there on a pad. Or maybe you were learning to draw something, and you would place a piece of paper over it, and you would draw over it in order to reproduce that. Well, the word is this underwriting. I have given you a template. I've given you an underwriting. I've given you an example, something that you are to overlay your life upon, and then as as exactly as you can, trace over the example that I've left you. I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. So you serve each other with humility You step down from your own kingdom, and in stepping down from your own kingdom, you will be stepping into a life with my kingdom, in my kingdom. And so with that that in mind, you are to serve one another. And then he goes on, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus is saying that that is the way that we are to live. It's that backwards step. There's something else that happens that night. Now, there's been debate about when exactly did it happen. Did what we're going to talk about next, there is a dispute that arises. There's an argument that arises. And some have said uh, it happens before Jesus washes their feet. Some have said, no, it happens after Jesus washes their feet. Some people have said Jesus washing their feet is an example that he gives to quiet down that dispute. When the argument occurs, Jesus washes their feet, they all grow silent, and Jesus uses that as a teaching moment. But others have said that the argument occurred after Jesus washed their feet. Jesus washed their feet, and the idea is they still did not understand what he was saying. Now, which one is it? Well, uh, you you read different people, you study different things, and it's kind of difficult to place that in a chronological order. Some place it before, some place it after. But regardless, the bottom line is the disciples did not completely understand what Jesus was communicating. Notice what happens. In Luke chapter 22, now this is there at that time at the Last Supper, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. That is, which of them would be regarded as greatest in the kingdom. 
And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. He goes on, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. The greatest becoming as the youngest. The youngest would have the, the I suppose you could say, the least amount of tenure. That youngest would be the one that has the, the least privileges as the youngest person in the family, the runt, the, the youngest child. And he says, rather let the greatest among you become like the youngest. Divest yourself of those privileges. And the leader is the one who serves. The one who leads needs to be the one who serves the most. For who is the greater? One who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? That is, the servant is serving the one who is there at the table eating. And then he says this, but I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus turns this over on its end. He turns this this whole idea of who is greatest upside down. And Jesus says again, to step up into the kingdom of God, you have to step down from your own kingdom. He's telling the disciples, it's not a matter of who's going to be the greatest. If you want to be the greatest, if you're going to argue about who's going to be the greatest, who's going to serve the most? Who's going to be the most humble in their service? And not serving in such a way that they go, look how humble I am. Look at all the service I did. I'm surely great because look at all the lowly things I did. That doesn't even enter into the equation. Remember what Jesus said earlier, beware practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. True humility, the truest form of humility is that humility that is performed before God. It may be performed before others, but it's done without any thought, without any motivation to try to receive praise and honor from others. It's done simply because out of our love for Christ, out of our love for others, and out of our desire to live according to the kingdom of God. And that's why we find Jesus saying this in Matthew chapter 18, verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The way into the kingdom, not only the way into the kingdom of God, requires humility. That is that we bow before God and we say, God, I can't do it on my own. It's only starting to count when I can't do anything else. I can't do any more. God, I've exhausted all of my resources and I know that every single one of them falls short in order to achieve that righteousness that you require. And so I'm casting myself upon your mercy, God. I'm trusting in what Jesus did on the cross when he died for my sins and I'm surrendering my life fully and completely to him. And I am a humble servant. I am yours. I belong to you. I don't belong to myself. I want to live for your kingdom. I don't want to live for my own kingdom anymore. And in doing so, in humbling yourself, Jesus says, that person is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But you're not humbling yourself in order so you may say, oh, now I want to be great, so I'm going to humble myself. No, you become great in the kingdom when you humble yourself simply because you recognize you have nothing to give other than what has been given to you by Christ alone. And then you turn around and you surrender that to Christ and give that back to him. Give give him your life as a sacrifice because the way up into the kingdom is meaning it means that we must first take a step down and step down from our own 
kingdom. So Jesus is saying, if you humble yourself like this child, so it's not only an entrance into the kingdom requires humility, living day by day at that all-time low, that full-time humility requires coming before him as a child, coming before him and receiving and accepting it as a helpless child would receive that from a loving parent. So we have this in Matthew chapter 18. Two chapters over in Matthew chapter 20, we have Jesus referring to himself and saying this in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The very reason that Jesus came was as a servant to give his life, to surrender his own life for the purpose of the kingdom of God. And that is so that many would have salvation. That's the very thing that we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. For, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Jesus died so that we might live no longer for ourselves. But he died for our sake and he was raised. The very reason Jesus died was so that we could have an entrance into his kingdom for his glory and so that we would no longer live for our own kingdom. Jesus died so that we could live in a continual, utterly, completely continual, full-time, all-time, for all-time, eternal lowliness and humility in him. Now that doesn't mean that we're not going to be exalted. The Bible talks about that. The Bible talks about how we're going to be glorified and that's going to be an amazing thing. But we recognize that all of that for all time, all of that is wrapped up in Christ. It's not by our own doing. And when we are in heaven, we will understand, I believe, even more fully and in a richer and deeper and perfect way just how much, uh, at least as much as we can, how much that sacrifice cost God. And I think only then will we have that deep, deep humility expressed without any sinful motivation. And we will turn that back to gratitude and thanks to God himself. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. And it seems strange to say, but thank you that we can live with an all-time low. Thank you that we can live with full-time humility. And Father, that's a, that's a fight many of us face. And I recognize that's a difficult thing whenever we consider the, uh, the weight of discipleship, the cost of discipleship. But Father, I pray that you might enable us to live for Christ, that we would depend upon his righteousness and not our own that we would cling to his goodness and not anything that we work up ourselves. And Father, I pray that we would live in such a way that we serve others in a humble way and in doing so make you known to a world that desperately needs the hope found in Christ and Christ alone. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.